0: I'm going to read our text for you this morning, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Listen as I read the Word of God. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm, in the Lord, my beloved. I urge you, Yodia and I urge Sentiki to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, to get, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. So read the words of the living God. So today we're beginning a new series. We're calling it Four Weeks in Philippians 4. Uh, Dan and Eric and I, weeks ago as we were realizing we were coming to the end of the Gospel of John, said, what do we, what do, we do next? And uh, we decided to do the series on uh, the kingdom and ascension and Pentecost, and then we thought uh, in light of all the stuff going on around us, what, what book of the Bible, what section is about joy and hope, uh, and we just all settled in on the book of Philippians. But we decided we're not going to do a whole series on Philippians just yet. If you remember, we're working our way through the entire New Testament, and the next book we should come to is Philippians. But we decided not to do a whole expositional series, but just capture four significant things from this chapter four, and we'll come back down the road and go through the entire letter. So we're, we're starting a new series, but in some ways, it's not a new series. In fact, what we've talked about the last three weeks... Jesus ascending to the throne of heaven and earth, where he reigns over the universe, where he is king. And he has been begun building his kingdom. That story is the only story. That is the one sermon. That is the theme that runs through the entire scripture. So even though we're starting a new series, quote-unquote, it's just building on the truth that Jesus Christ is is the Lord of the world, the Lord of the earth. So, we're going to see some themes recur even as we look at these four weeks of Philippians chapter 4. Now, the, the passage I read to you began with the word, therefore. If you've taken any of my seminary classes or even some of my old Sunday school classes, you know that I tell our seminary students, whenever you see, therefore, you have to ask a question. What's it therefore there for? Yes, you all got it. So we need to back up and pick up some of the context before we see why Paul says, therefore, stand firm. So I want to go back and look beginning in verse 17 of chapter 3 where Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. He's, he's saying, I want you to pay attention to what behavior you've seen in us uh, and, and follow that pattern be like us, imitate us. And here's why, verse 18. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So I've been pondering that verse this week. And one of the things that has caught my attention is the fact that he uses the phrase, there are many enemies of the cross of Christ. Why did he say cross? Why not just enemies of Christ? We know there are many enemies of Christ. In fact, the verse that is the most frequently quoted from the Old Testament in the New Testament is from Psalm 110 where God says to the Messiah, we now know that's Jesus, he says, sit here at my right hand until I take all of your enemies and I put them under your feet like a footstool. So that's what God is doing. That's what he's been doing for 2,000 years. He's been taking the enemies of Jesus and putting them under his feet. We know there are people who are opposed to Jesus. But Paul doesn't say there are many enemies of Christ in this text, He says they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And I've been pondering now, why did he frame it that way? What is it that would cause someone to be in hostility against the cross? We can understand people not wanting to acknowledge Jesus as king, not wanting to bow down before him, but what is it about the cross that would provoke enmity? Well, what does the cross communicate to people? The cross levels the playing field. When you focus on why Jesus had to go to the cross, there is no room for pride in anything about us. There's no room for arrogance, there's no room to build ourselves up in comparison to someone else. There's no room for demands upon other people. Because what the cross says to every human being is, you deserve one thing from the hands of God, and only one thing. You don't deserve justice. You don't deserve blessing you don't deserve God's goodness. What you deserve from the hands of God is unmitigated, eternal wrath. And that is the state of every human being on planet Earth. That's what we deserve. And the cross says Jesus came and he hung on the cross and he received the unmitigated wrath of God. And all of us who put our trust in Him, we avoid the wrath of God, and He does give us goodness and blessing and kindness. But we can't receive those blessings without first bowing our knees before the only one who deserves that obeisance, and that is Jesus Christ on the cross. So it levels the playing field. And it requires humility. And some people don't want to humble themselves before Christ. They don't want to admit, I deserve God's wrath and I'm no better than any other human. They they clamor for themselves, which is what he goes on to describe in some very graphic language. Verse 19, talking about these people who are enemies of the cross of Christ, he says, whose end is destruction. Now in English, that sounds like they're going to end up being destroyed, but that's not what's going on here. Uh, Again, I'm tempted to call on our seminary students, but I won't. The the Greek word lying behind this word end is the word telos, and you've probably heard me teach on this before because it's one of my favorite words to point out its meaning. Telos is not just the completion of something. It's not just the end or the ceasing of something. Telos has to do with the goal. When he says their end is destruction, he's saying their goal is destruction. Do you see how that changes the emphasis? He's not talking about their experience. He's talking about their objective. People who are enemies of the cross of Christ, their goal, their objective, what they are trying to accomplish is to destroy other things and other people can you imagine a world of people who want to destroy other people and other things? You don't have to imagine it, do you? There are those who, this is what they're after. Any good thing, they want to see it wiped out. Anywhere they see peace, they want to bring turmoil. Where they see a great marriage, they want to destroy that. Where they see a strong family, they want that upended. Where they see people gathering in peace, loving one another and worshiping, they want to bring destruction there. When they see anybody doing the right thing, they hate that. And their goal is to bring upheaval of all the systems, all the good things in life. There are people who want to do that for no other reason then that's what they want. And they may couch it in all kinds of other reasons, but Paul here says they're driven in hostility toward the cross of Christ. Kind of flies in the face of what we've all been taught since we were little, at least by the culture, people are basically good. People basically want to get along. No, people don't basically want to get along. People want to fight and they want to cause turmoil. He goes on describing them. He says, whose God is their appetite. They have a God, they have someone they worship, someone they offer sacrifices to. It's not the Lord Jesus. It's themselves. It's their own appetites, their own desires. The word literally is the word for stomach. Some of the other translations say their God is their belly. Can you imagine a people who worship their own desires? Yeah, you can. We're surrounded by them. They're driven to satisfy every, every want. If they want power then they pursue with great devotion, building up their own power. If it's pleasure, if it's money, whatever they want, they chase after it with all the devotion of any religious fanatic because they are, they're, they're in obedience, they're in worship to their own bellies. It says they, their glory is their shame. Let that sink in for a minute. Their glory is their shame. There are things that people do that should produce an embarrassment, a shame, a not wanting others to know about it. And there have been periods in American history, for instance, when there were certain activities that people did, but they didn't do it out in front of everybody, and when it was exposed, they felt a sense of shame. Those days are largely gone. Unless we're talking about praying and pleasing Jesus, and then the, you know, we're kind of ashamed of that, it seems. I saw uh, an advertisement for a new reality TV show the other day, and I thought I'd seen it all. But in this show, if I understand it correctly, there's a woman who, I think she's 40 years old, and she has no children. So the reality show is going to be, there's a group of, uh, I think, about 15 men who are vying for the opportunity not to become her husband, but to impregnate her so she can have a child. Now, it hasn't been that long ago in our culture that when a woman who's not married got pregnant, she felt a sense of shame. She didn't want people to know that she was pregnant because that would be proof that she had committed fornication, and that was not okay to acknowledge that in front of the whole world. How far we have come, but now we have an entertainment platform where a woman is saying, you guys, all you men, get to compete for the one who gets to commit fornication with me so I can have a child. And people are going to watch this show and root for different men on the show. They glory in their shame, this thing that should be embarrassing for them. No, we're not embarrassed. We're going to glory in it. We're going to flaunt it. We're going to make a TV show about it. Because the cross requires people to humble themselves and admit, I'm a sinner, and there are things I shouldn't do. But the enemies of the cross say, there is nothing I shouldn't do. I can do whatever I want. And I think all of this stems from the last phrase of verse 19. Paul describes them as those who set their minds on earthly things. Their minds, their focus, their thinking is all on the things of this life, of this earth. We know why our nation is the way it is today. Why we glory in our shame. Why our God is our belly. Why there are those striving to bring destruction. It's because we're now in at least the second generation of those who have grown up Being told by all of the experts, this earth is all there is. This is it. You're a cosmic accident. There's no explanation for why we are here. It's just dumb luck. And somehow in time, billions and billions and billions of years, life has burst out of non-life, and we've evolved to this place that we are now. And when you die, you just disintegrate. You stop being. And that's all there is the earth. And that, I'm, I'm including, of course, the physical universe. But there's nothing beyond material things. And if that's true, you can't set your mind on anything that, that transcends the material things because there is nothing. That would be foolish. That would be believing in myths, that would be silly. If this earth is all there is, then of course you can only dwell on earthly things, and if you dwell only on earthly things, there's no beginning purpose of your life, there's no end goal of your life, you only have now, well, then it just becomes a power of, a, a, a pursuit of really a survival of the fittest and the strongest, and who can conform everyone else into my image until someone bigger comes along and tries to conform me into their image. It's all about me my desires, my wants. Their minds are set on things of this earth. That's why Paul says this this phrase that we're all so familiar with, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Ultimately, we have to get beyond the here and now and remember that we belong to an eternal kingdom and we serve the eternal Lord so that we don't get consumed with secularism and evolutionary theory And all the sins that come with it. Remember, you belong to the kingdom of heaven. So what do we do in a culture like this? I mean, Paul's describing 21st century America very, very well. And maybe it's comforting for us to realize this is not new in 21st century America. Remember we talked about when Jesus took his throne, when he began reigning over heaven and earth? He did not receive a kingdom of nations who loved him. He did not receive tribes, tongues, peoples who said, we've been waiting for the Messiah to come. We bow down before him. This is wonderful. We love you, Jesus. That's not what he received. He received a group of people who were against him. And so he's been building his church and conforming people into his image for 2,000 years and trans. Uh, 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 trans, what's the word I'm looking for? He's changing them, transforming them. Transforming them from the inside out. He's been doing that for two millennia. But the people who are not transformed are the same as they were in his day. And that's where we take the gospel. And that's why we take the gospel. So, given that as the background, he says, therefore, in light of the fact that this is how the world is, therefore, I'm telling you how to live in that world. And he doesn't say, Christians, gather in your little holy huddles on Sunday mornings and sing songs and enjoy each other's company and then go out there and merely survive the world until next Sunday. He doesn't say withdraw from the world. He doesn't say the world systems are unimportant. He doesn't say refrain from getting involved in politics. He doesn't say refrain from having a voice in that culture. In fact, just the opposite. Remember, he sent out the apostles, and the apostles sent out their disciples, and for 20 centuries, we've been raising up and sending out more disciples to transform this world to bring the kingdom of God into this world. So we are to be on the offensive, not the defensive. We win. Our king reigns. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. So we're to be on the offense in this culture. How do we do that? We don't raise up an army of gun-wielding soldiers. He tells us what to do. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord. As the world pushes against us, we don't cave, we don't give in, we don't retreat. We don't say, okay, fine, the world's going to hell in a handbasket and there's nothing I can do about it. We stand firm in the Lord. Not in our political leanings, not in traditions, not in patriotism. We stand firm in the Lord Jesus because our citizenship ultimately is in heaven where God reigns through His Son, Jesus Christ. So we don't get tossed around by every new thought or old thought renewed. We don't get tossed around by all the chaos. We stand where we are in the Lord. Amen. Say it again. That's what he says. Secondly, he says, get along in the Lord. Live in harmony in the Lord. He he, calls out these two women. How, how would you like to be these two women? Euodia and Sintikiki. I would not hate to say be them because nobody would know how to say my names. Uh, these two women he calls out in front of the entire congregation and says, get along. Now their dear sisters, he says their names are in the book of life and I love them. They've done great work for the kingdom and been great partners with me but whatever it is that's causing strife, get over it. And whoever is actually delivering this, he says, I'm telling you, get involved with them and help them to get over it, but they need to come to the same mind. That's, the word literally translated live in harmony is, is closer to be of the same mind, come to a meeting of the minds, think the same way in the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean we all have to agree on everything. We don't. We're, there's lots of different opinions in this room on all kinds of things. How severe is the pandemic? Should we wear masks? What's going on with the racism battles and the protests? There are all kinds of opinions on those things, and you are free to have your opinions. But even with a diversity of opinions, we can come to the same mindset, Jesus Christ and His kingdom and building His kingdom is the highest priority. And let's talk at the secondary and tertiary levels. How do we get along in our differences in these other areas when we agree the fact that we are going to please Jesus? And that's why the translator translates it live in harmony. As I was hearing the, uh, the music team, and then hearing all of you in that song before, we, before I came up here, what I heard were different parts. It was beautiful. Some of you were singing uh, alto lines and tenor lines and bass lines along with the team, and I could hear the different harmonies. You were singing different parts. You weren't all singing exactly the same thing. And Abby was singing a, a refrain on one of the songs. Over the top, a descant over the top, different parts, but it sounded wonderful because everybody had the same objective in the Lord. That's what we're called to do. Come to the same mind in the Lord. So he says, ladies, move past your struggle. Come back to the bigger things. And then verse 4 Rejoice always. Again I say rejoice. Rejoice always. Today, the command of the Lord Jesus Christ for you is rejoice. Now here's the thing. You notice the qualification, the qualifying phrase in all three of these commands. In the Lord. He doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances doesn't say when things are really, really tough, just put on the happy face and make make like everything's wonderful. If he tells us to rejoice always, that tells me that grieving and sorrow is not mutually excluded from rejoicing. We are capable of experiencing pain and suffering and grieving through those times and at the same time, In the Lord rejoicing. We're not talking about a blind optimism or a blind faith. It's a matter of perspective. As hard as this thing is, and there are some really hard things in life, and we know we are supposed to mourn those really hard things. We're told it's another command. But from the eternal perspective, all of that mourning is going to go away because Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave. And therefore, even in the midst of my mourning, I can rejoice. And it's a command. So we don't watch the news and look at all the craziness going on and get down and depressed and pessimistic. As Christians, we are not allowed to do that. Jesus is still on his throne. We sang it, behold our God seated on his throne. If you meant those words, then you have to rejoice today even if Colorado Springs burns down. Because we know how this ends, we know the ultimate story that's being told. And somehow, even all this madness that we perceive around us, Jesus is using to build his kingdom and to bring glory to his name. And if we, those who know that truth, are fighting and bickering and complaining and filled with sorrow, that's not the right word, filled with pessimism, then we've forgotten the bigger story. And we're not sending the message to the rest of the world. We know how this turns out. Verse five. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. If someone, say a non-believer, were to scour your Facebook page, Instagram, locals, whatever your social media of choice is, if someone were to look at that, would they see someone who is gentle or someone who's harsh and abrasive. You know, there is a way to stand firm. There's a way to voice opinions. There is a way to speak into what you perceive as error and do it with gentleness. So he says, be gentle. Let your gentleness be known, for the Lord is near. That is an ambiguous phrase. He could mean the Lord's return is near. So you're going to give an account for your words. Be gentle. Or he may mean the Lord is nearby. He will sustain you. He's aware of what's going on. He will empower you. So be gentle. You have nothing to fear. Or maybe he's being intentionally ambiguous, and it means both. It's kind of where I lean. Be gentle. Let your gentleness be known. The thing about Paul here is Paul has said some pretty hard things to the Philippians hard things about others. I didn't read this. I didn't go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 3, but when he talks about the Judaizers, he says, beware of the dogs. And he is pretty straightforward with what the Judaizers are after. In fact, that may be who he's talking about when he talks about the enemies of the cross of Christ, those who are trying to eradicate Christianity and bring these people back to Judaism. And he says very, he's, he's concerned to make sure the church understands the seriousness of what's going on and the motives of these guys. Again, their God is their belly. The, their goal is destruction and all of that. But did you notice the phrase that I read in verse 18? Many walk of whom I've often told you and tell you now even weeping. Friends, as we look at what's going on in our culture right now and we start forming opinions, I mean, we all know what's out there. We all know the debates. We've all taken positions on those debates. Is racism real? How significant is it? Which side is right? Conservativism versus liberalism. What's the difference between protesting and rioting? Republicans, Democrats, all the stuff that's going on. Is it okay for a little portion of Seattle area to pull away and form their own nation while the rest of us pay for their utilities and such? I mean, this is real life, and it's happening right now. And as Christians... We need to speak into these things. There is truth, biblical truth, that should undergird our opinions and our voices in these things. He said, stand firm. It does not mean we pull back and shy away from the discussion. But even as Paul is describing these things and says hard, harsh things about them, Again, their God is their belly, their goal is destruction. He says, I'm telling you about them while I weep. Whatever side you take on some of these things, as you get agitated about those who hold the other position, does it ever make you weep? Is there any part of you that realizes that all of the people, if we remove uh, for, for a moment, remove the immediate controversy and just look at what is most likely the status of those who are creating all this madness? the biggest problem for everybody is not the temporal consequences. And I'm not saying that's not important. But they're going to stand before the Lord Jesus someday, give an account. And if they're not in Christ, they will perish forever. If we just Argue and debate and think and post from an American conservative perspective or another perspective, whatever perspective you're coming from, and don't recognize this is, there's a bigger conflict going on here. And there are bigger things at stake. And if it doesn't cause us to weep for what's happening on multiple levels. It may be that we are not viewing the world from the perspective of a Christian. We're called to build the kingdom of God. And that has impact on all of these things. And again, please don't hear me saying, we don't speak into it, we don't have opinions, we should. But our attitude has to reflect well on Christ. And we are going to stand before Jesus someday. And I'm not going to give an account for the people in Washington or the people in Oregon. I'm going to give an account for me. My words, my attitudes, my provoking others to action... We've got to remember it is ultimately about Jesus and His glory and His church and His kingdom. If you haven't been provoked to weeping at all about what's going on in our nation, I would urge you, spend a little more time in prayerful reflection with your Bible open it will cause you to weep. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're about to sing a song where we're declaring that your glory, your church, your righteousness, it's all to us. That's what matters above all. To us. Oh Lord, make make it plain in our hearts where we can't say that in good faith and bring us to humility and repentance in those cases. And Lord, make us a people who can sing this with full, genuine sincerity. We are rising above the things of this earth and looking at the things of this earth from the perspective of the kingdom of God. And therefore, you are all to us. Pray this for your glory, for our good. Amen.